I would invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptures to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. If you have one of the black Bibles that are provided there in the seat, you'll, you'll find today's text on page 582. 582. Acts chapter 11. We're going to be considering this morning verses 19 through 30. And so I would invite you to follow along as I read those verses aloud. And then I would encourage you to keep your Bible open as we consider this text of Scripture and learn from it. Acts 11, beginning in verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. But... Some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. And encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. In these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that this morning we would be humbled before it, that we would learn from it, and that you would help us to be better servants of yours, a better church corporately, and a better uh, better individually as believers as we follow what we are taught this morning. In Christ's name, amen. The church promotes the gospel in a variety of ways. And in fact, here in this passage of Scripture, we see the early church promoting the gospel in a variety of ways. There are really three different ways that we see the church advancing the gospel, some direct, some indirect. And it is good for us to think this morning, along with this local church, these uh, series of local churches, how we as a group of believers can in fact advance the gospel. We see the church, first of all, recognizing uh, an opportunity even in the midst of adversity. And so this, this witnessing church that we see all throughout the book of Acts, there are many things that we could articulate about how they advance the gospel, but in this passage specifically, we see a witnessing church recognizing an, an opportunity even in the midst of adversity. Did you notice it? Did you notice it in verse 19? It actually starts off this paragraph by saying, those that were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen. Now, you remember a few chapters back that we saw the first 
Christian martyr, right? We saw Stephen, who was a deacon, who was also ambitious about winning people to Christ. He was sharing the gospel, and that got him in trouble with the authorities. So what do they do? They drag him out of town, and they stone him to death, the first Christian martyr. Now, we know that ever since about chapter 6 or 7 or so, right, the, that the, the persecution has been ramping up for the early church. But we also know, according to chapter 8, that, that what happened because of that. You remember chapter 8? We looked very closely at the language there. It said that they were scattered all over except, you remember this? We looked at this, except the apostles. And then what we discovered was, later in chapter 8, that those who were scattered went everywhere doing what? Preaching the word. And so that's exactly what we see here in Acts 11. We see this persecution continuing to ratchet up. Now, certainly one of the chief persecutors, uh, Saul slash Paul, had a bit of a change of heart, <laughs> right? And we just saw that. But that doesn't mean that the persecution goes away. There might have been a brief respite after Paul's conversion, but then soon again the persecution would increase. Well, those who are being scattered are now traveling. See that in verse 19? Uh, as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now, we're going to focus some more attention on Antioch as the book of Acts moves forward. So understand that Antioch is about 300 miles away. See, 300 miles. Uh, Oklahoma. Is that about 300 miles? Not, that's not a big deal. Yeah, but you're walking in those days, right? So when we're talking about 300 miles, we're talking about a two-week journey. I mean, for all intents and purposes in modern times, a two-week journey is the other side of the world. And so here you have people being scattered because of the persecution that is taking place in the early church. They're going as far as, as two weeks journey away to this, this city called Antioch. Notice in verse 20, it says, uh, the last part of verse 19, it says they were preaching the word to the Jews only, right? We're in this middle, again, keep in mind the context. If you've been with us for this study, you know that the, the early church is in kind of a transitional state. I mean, the first Gentile believer just got saved a chapter ago. So we are in this new era where the gospel is now open to the Gentiles, and by reflex, this primarily Jewish church is being scattered, and their natural impulse is what? To witness to their own people. So they are witnessing to the Jews only. But, verse 20 is, is key. Some of them were men from Cyprus or Cyrene, from, from Gentile-dominated areas, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. All right? So these are Greek-speaking people. They might have known a little bit about the Jewish Messiah, but their, primarily, their primary frame of reference is not Judaism but they still would have known about salvation because they used titles like Lord and Savior. They would, have, they would have known those words. And in fact, these are words that we see coming up in this passage. Now, let me say this too. When, they, when he says Hellenists in this passage, it seems clear from the context that he is not just talking about Greek-speaking Jews because the entire context is making a big deal out of the fact that there's a shift now. Greek-speaking Jews had already been an important part of the church and Luke is making the point for us that the gospel is going out to Greek speakers. 
and that is to say Greek-speaking Gentiles here in the city of Antioch. And what happens, verse 21, the hand of the Lord is with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now, there are many, many things in this little paragraph here that I think are worth our consideration. All right. First of all, this is relational evangelism in action. I wonder, when you see words like in verse 19, preaching the word, or in the last part of verse 20, preaching the Lord Jesus, what do you think of? I mean, do you think of a guy in a suit and tie standing behind a pulpit? That's, that's often what we think of when we hear this English word preaching. But the word is just simply proclaiming. And understand all throughout the book of Acts that, yes, the apostles, yes, uh, in a formal gathering of the church, there was preaching, no doubt. But often when we see this word used here, we're not talking about formal stand behind a pulpit, one guy talking to the multitudes type preaching. We're talking about faithful believers who are taking the gospel with them everywhere they go. And this is the way the church works. In fact, for the earliest centuries of the church, this was almost entirely how the gospel was spread. Certainly, we have instances like Peter who preaches on the day of Pentecost and several thousand get saved. But how did the, how did the word of Christ make its way all throughout the known world? It was because there was this scattering and the believers were taking the message of Jesus with them. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. The trap that we often fall into in Christianity is we think, oh, well, the, the preaching of the gospel, that's what we do on Sunday mornings. No, no, no. The early church had this mission uh, woven into their very being such that everywhere they went, day to day, was an endeavor of preaching the gospel. And so the Lord tremendously blesses this, and I would just now, the term relational evangelism is not used anywhere in the book of Acts, but I would just submit to you, that's what we see happening. It is people going out from where they were comfortable, getting pushed out by persecution, by difficulties, by, by adversity, and that is seen now as an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. You ever heard the story of how um, Velcro was invented? So this engineer, right? Some of you have heard this before, right? This engineer kept getting tired of those little burrs, those little kind of sand spurs, getting stuck all over his socks. And one day he came back from a, uh, from a hike, from a long hike, and, and he decided he'd been in the Alps and he had these burrs, these stickers all over him, and he decided to start, to start examining why do these things stick so well? And so he studied them, and he replicated the same concept uh, with synthetic material, which is now what we call Velcro. Okay, so he takes this, this inconvenient, this troubling, this, this bothersome thing that is, that is a nuisance, and he says, now where is there an opportunity here? Well, very often we need to think like that. As believers, we need to instead of think, well, this is, this is a difficulty, this is an adversity, this is a, a trial... It may be all of those things, and no one's belittling that. But at the same time, we need to be asking ourselves, okay, what opportunity is God giving me through this? I dare say that none of these people that are being scattered because of the adversity in the early church 
are glad that they are having to uproot and, and flee. Some, some even for fear of their, their lives and their welfare. Yet as they go, the gospel is going with them. And so the question for us this morning is, first of all, what adversity do you and I face? What difficult circumstance do you face at work or in your neighborhood or, or with your health or with your finances that, that you need to ask, Lord, where is there the opportunity in this? How can you, how can you use this in my life to, to glorify yourself and to advance the gospel in my sphere of influence? May we, may we be constantly looking for the opportunities that God has given us But then recognize, too, as we think about applying uh, what the early church had learned, is what opportunities do you and I have for the gospel? Do we think of the gospel? Are we constantly looking for those opportunities that God gives us? I dare say that sometimes I'm guilty of this, too, right? We, We pray, Lord, Lord, give me opportunities to share the gospel. Well, that's a good prayer. And you know why it's such a good prayer? Because sometimes when we pray it, we're alert to the opportunities that are already there, right? We, we pray it and we realize the Lord does. He gives us a lot of opportunities. Sometimes we're just not paying enough attention. And so as we go through our day-to-day walk, recognize that our mission of making disciples, producing genuine followers of Jesus Christ, that's a mission that we carry with us as the church Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's not just a mission that we accomplish on Sunday when we gather together. Well, that's what the early church was committed to. They were committed to, to utilizing every opportunity that God had given them, even the ones that were presented to them because of distress, because of adversity. And so a witnessing church is one that recognizes adversity as opportunity. We see in verses 22 through 24 that a witnessing church is grateful for God's work in other places. So we now see Uh, the gospel going forward, even amongst the Greek-speaking Gentiles. And in verse 22, we see that the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem was kind of the mother church, right? I mean, this is where the gospel had first been preached. This is where thousands of people had been saved on the day of Pentecost. This is where the apostles are residing. And so this is kind of the epicenter of all the activities. I'll give you a little hint. I give you a little clue. After this point in the book of Acts, it shifts. And this little church in Antioch that's just getting started here in this text is pretty soon going to be the center of attention. But up until this point, Jerusalem has been. That's where the apostles are. And so word comes back to Jerusalem. Hey, there's something going on in Antioch. We better send some people to go check it out. And so what do they do? Verse 22, they send Barnabas to go to Antioch. Antioch in Syria... Just kind of some, for some background so you understand, Antioch in Syria was the third greatest city in the Roman Empire at that time. Rome would have been first. Alexandria would have been second. It was a major uh, epicenter of activity. In the first century, it was estimated to have a half a million inhabitants, which if you know anything about ancient civilizations, a, half, a city of a half a million people was huge. I mean, that was a massive metro. Uh, in, in, a, in the ancient world. So uh, it was well populated. It was a beautiful location. It was right on a major river. 
Um, there were springs nearby. There was a fertile plain nearby. And so there were visitors literally from all over the world in this major metropolitan area called Antioch. It was kind of a connecting hub for the whole world. So you think about a city that has a large international airport, for example, right? Uh, businesses will move to that city because they can get connecting flights from that city. People will move there from, from, from even other countries. They'll, they'll want to locate in that city because that's where the action is. That's where the whole world gets connected, right? This is the type of city that Antioch was. And God is about to do a great thing for global missions, for the gospel reaching out to the ends of the earth through what he's doing in the city of Antioch. So they send Barnabas in verse 22. Verse 23 says what? He came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And so what does he do? He encourages them. Now this word encouraging uh, in the original language is actually one that is used to describe the Holy Spirit. right? One who comes alongside to strengthen. That's the ministry of the Spirit. Well now if you know anything about Barnabas, you know that this is the type of guy he was. If you study the life of Barnabas, you'll find that he was an encourager. And this isn't some just generic pat them on the back saying, you're doing a good job, guys, right? This is real, meaningful, spiritual encouragement. This is, this is taking people and teaching them, encouraging them, giving them a, a good direction. So, so Barnabas has this, this valuable role in the early church of encouraging. And when I see the ministry of Barnabas, I have to ask myself, I have to ask us, who are you and I encouraging in their walk with Christ? Asked a different way. Who in this church is a better Christian because they are your friend? Who do you know that is, that is walking more faithfully with Christ because you have encouraged them on that path? The simple ministry of encouragement of, of helping people to grow in Christ is invaluable. The apostles, I think, by good instinct, send a man that they know will help, that he will be an encouragement. And, and, and in fact, the text actually tells us that this is the kind of a man he was, right? Verse 24, he's a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So Barnabas, this the son of consolation, as his name would be translated, goes and he sees the grace of God and he encourages them. And by the way, the tense of the verb is this idea of a continuing season of exhortation. He doesn't just come in and say, yep, you're doing a good job. It's nice to see what you're doing here and go on his way. No, he actually stays for a period of time and is in the, is in the active ministry of encouragement. What does he encourage them to do? Uh, that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. He's helping them in their spiritual journey. He's helping them to advance, to continue forward. Matthew Henry explains it this way, that the meaning here is to cleave to the Lord Jesus, is to live a life of dependence on Him, devoted to Him, not just to hold uh, Him fast, but to hold fast by Him. To be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. So this is the idea that we see in the book of John of abiding in him. Stay connected to Christ. Continue to grow in him. And the reason he did that, verse 24, is because he was a good man. He was full of the Spirit and full of faith. This ministry of encouraging the gospel 
of encouraging the growth of fellow believers is tremendously important. And I wonder why is it at the outset of this, uh, this little explanation here in verse 22, do we see, okay, the, the word came to those in Jerusalem, so they dispatched somebody. Now, there could be several layers of motivation here. But remember, the, the whole idea of the gospel going to the Gentiles is pretty new. So they want to make sure that this is, this is faithful, this is true, that the, this is genuinely the gospel, that this is genuinely the work of the Holy Spirit. And so they send this man Barnabas who encourages them and then he, notice that he is glad. When he sees that this is a genuine work of God, that, that God's grace is being manifest, that the Holy Spirit is, is genuinely falling, he is glad, he rejoices. His instincts are right. His instinct is not, well, who do you people out here in, in, the, in, the, in the hills of, of Antioch think you are? Right? I mean, like... The real action's back in Jerusalem. I mean, that's where the apostles are. That's where this whole thing started. I mean, that's where, that's where we had Pentecost and thousands of people saved at one time. No, his instinct is to rejoice in what God is doing here. I wonder, do we rejoice at the work that God is doing in other places? I just want to remind us that a partisan spirit within Christianity, is harmful to the gospel. Now, I want to be clear, this is not to say that those who claim Christ yet preach a false Christ should not be opposed. Absolutely, they should be. That's not what we're talking about. I mean, just because someone claims the banner of Christian doesn't mean that it's the true gospel. Um, This is also not to say that doctrinal accuracy is unimportant. It is very important. What we're talking about here is brothers and sisters in Christ. Perhaps even those who are different than us. Perhaps even those with whom we may disagree on lesser points. Yet they believe the true gospel. A partisan spirit is harmful to the cause of of the gospel. In fact, Paul goes really pretty far with it in Philippians 1. Do you remember this passage? He says, Some indeed preach Christ even from strife and envy, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my change. Right? So, so Paul is saying there are people out there that are preaching the gospel, that, that they have bad motives. In fact, they're trying to kind of add insult to injury. They're trying to kind of show me up, make me look bad here in prison, even as they preach the gospel. I mean, do you get what he's saying? They're preaching the gospel, but their motives are not pure. Verse 17, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Verse 18, I mean, this, does this conclusion surprise you? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is is preached, and in this I rejoice, yet and I will rejoice. Does that surprise you? Does that reaction surprise you? Paul says there's people out there, they're preaching a true gospel, they're not doing everything like I wish they would, in fact I think their motives might be a little off, but they're preaching the truth and I rejoice in that. 
They're preaching a true gospel. I mean, that's, that's pretty big of Paul, that the gospel is more important than our petty differences. There may be some who are different than us. There may be even some with whom we strenuously disagree. If we are people of conviction and we are genuinely wrestling with the Word of God, we will come to conclusions, and we will hold those conclusions uh, strongly as convictions, and, and, they, and our brothers and sisters in Christ may do the same. So, so there may be those that we, we strenuously disagree with. Maybe even our disagreement is such that we can't cooperate with them in an ongoing ministry, but they are not the enemy if we are preaching the gospel. So they may be independent Baptist, or they may be Southern Baptist, or they may be a faithful non-denominational group, or they may be evangelical free church, or they may be a Bible church, or they may be Orthodox Presbyterian, or they may be one of any other number of groups that are being faithful to the gospel. And we rejoice that the gospel is going forward in those places. God chooses to bless as he sees fit. And God may choose to bless a harvest somewhere else in the body. Right? What should our response be to that? Another local church, another city, Another country is seeing the blessings of God, is seeing people saved and disciple. What is our reaction supposed to be to that? Well, Lord, how come you're not doing that here? Well, I really, I mean, so-and-so, yeah, they got to lead this person to Christ, and I haven't been able to do that, but I, I've been preaching it, I don't understand. Why did God give them that fruit and not me? That shouldn't be our response. Our response should be, praise God. The gospel is going forward. People are being saved. People are being discipled. And yes, it is the plea of our heart, God, God, let me be part of that work. But in the end, we are rejoicing that God is doing a work. I think as we see the attitude of Barnabas and, and, and vicariously the church in Jerusalem, we ought to be reminded to guard our hearts against a partisan spirit a spirit of jealousy that looks at God's work, looks at the gospel going forward and says, well, well, why isn't he doing that here? Let's guard our hearts and rejoice in how God is using even others to accomplish his work. There are several reasons that we do this practice, all right? but one of the reasons that we pray for other churches every Sunday morning is to remind ourselves week by week, it's not all about what God's doing right here. We have, we have partners, we have brothers and sisters in Christ in other places, in other lands, who are our allies, that are working on the front lines just as we are. And we rejoice that we can be partnered together in the cause of the gospel. A witnessing church is grateful for what God is doing in other places. And then one final application. A witnessing church can only be grateful for God's work in other places when they know about it. Right? So what do they do? They send Barnabas. They, they get word, something's going on over there. 
hey, Barnabas, go find out what's going on over there. And when they do, they rejoice in it. It is important for us to be aware of other churches, sister churches uh, that, are, that are preaching the gospel, uh, missionaries who are taking the gospel to other places. I, I wonder, do you, do you pray for other ministries? I hope you do. When you're out of town and you're traveling and you're going through, you know, central Missouri, do you find another good church that you can, on Sunday, that you can worship with, that you can encourage them? Uh, we've mentioned before this network that we are part of. That's, those aren't, not every good church in the nation is listed on that website, but that's a good source. Um, to, to, when you're traveling, jump on, jump on that website, archmen.org, and say, hmm, where are some other churches that are, that are like-minded that we can visit, that we can encourage, and say, hey, hey, we pray for you. You're on our list of churches that we pray for. Be aware and be rejoicing what God is doing in other places. We see in this passage as well that a witnessing church supports gospel growth. Not just in some passive sense. Certainly those who are part of this church are verbally giving the gospel, but there's other ways in which they support it. And in this passage, we actually see two in particular. We see them supporting gospel growth through generous ministry. Notice it in verse 25. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. All right, so in verse 25, Barnabas gets to the church, right? He, he encourages them, but he sees a need for ministry. I mean, it's probably safe to say that these are all brand new believers. They need to be discipled. So what does Barnabas instinctively do? Now, how am I going to encourage these people? Well, I'm going to do more than just pat them on the back and say, keep up the good work. I'm going to make sure that they have effective ministry. So what does he do? He goes and seeks this guy named Paul, who is this growing Christian who has a lot of zeal. And he says, hey, come minister alongside of me. And for this length of time, about a year, they actually spend time ministering in the Antioch church because there are believers there that need to be taught. They need to grow. I mean, this is, this is what our ministry philosophy is all about, right? This life-touching life discipleship. Barnabas says, there's a bunch of believers here that need to be discipled. I submit Barnabas was probably all about life-touching life discipleship. So he's like, I need, I need some help here. I need some reinforcements. He goes and gets Paul, and they spend their time pouring into the believers here. They're generous with their ministry to them. They're encouraging them by, by tangible, substantive efforts of teaching them the Word of God. And we notice here something really interesting historical note in verse, the last part of verse 26, right? Did you catch it? The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, we don't give much thought to the term Christian because we use it so readily. But... Prior to this, they were not called Christians. Now, the unbelieving Jews would not have called them by that name, right? Because the term Christ is the term Messiah. And they denied that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. So it's not the Jews that are calling them that. The members of the church didn't call themselves that. We see a number of things that they called themselves in the book of Acts, right? Believers, disciples, brethren saints, followers of the way. These are the things that the church, how they designated themselves. And so we conclude that it must have been Gentiles 
who were listening to their witness, who were calling them Christians. And in fact, there's only two occurrences of the word in the entire New Testament, and this is one of them. The other one is when Paul is standing before uh, the, the Caesar, and he says, almost you persuaded me to be a Christian. Now, many Bible scholars, many historical observers know that when this term started, it was a derisive term. This was intended to be an insult. You bunch of eons, uh, miniature Christs. You bunch, you're a bunch of little Christs running around. I mean, that was intended to be kind of a, a pejorative term. Those on the outside called them that derisively. And now we wear it as a badge of honor, do we not? It's important for us to understand that the church in Antioch made such an impact on their community around them that the community around them actually came up with their own little term for them. And it wasn't intended as a compliment, but in the end, I think it probably was. You look like this Jesus fella. You act like this Jesus fella. Praise the Lord. And so this is where the term actually got started, um, which is a very interesting uh, note on the kind of impact this church had. So Paul and Barnabas have an effective ministry there to them. They're generous. And then in verses 27 through 30, we see there's a prophet that comes from Jerusalem named Agabus. Um, God shows him that there is going to be a famine. And, of course, we know that the first century church had the ministry of inspired apostles and prophets. We see that in Ephesians 4. Of course, today we have the complete written word of God and thus do not any longer need inspired interpreters. But Agabus makes this pronouncement that there's going to be a need. So what is the response of the church? Verse 29, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. They sent it via Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So they see that their brothers and sisters are in need. Actually, they technically see that they're going to be in need. And they say, let's do something about that. I mean, let's not just observe that there's a need. Let's, let's do something about that. And what do they do? They give generously to help their brothers and sisters in Christ in need. And so too, we as believers should be eager to help other believers. The Lord has given us a ministry to each other, a ministry of encouragement, a ministry of teaching, and a ministry of helps. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul appreciated those who had helped his ministry, even through prayer in 2 Corinthians. And of course, if you follow the, the strain through the book of Acts and on into the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, you see that the New Testament churches also support the furtherance of the gospel. Right? Paul is often thanking churches for their gift that, that advance the gospel into other places. And this is how the missionary journeys uh, of Paul were, were sponsored by churches giving generously to the support of the gospel. I wonder, do you sometimes think of giving as kind of a secondary means? Uh, kind of something that's not, not really spreading the gospel, but uh, kind of it is. That is not the attitude that we should have when we consider the New Testament. Now, certainly, we can have a wrong attitude in our giving. We can we can use that as just kind of an excuse for not having to actually do something, and I fear that some Christians do that. 
But if we're giving out of a heart of generosity, a heart of love, a, a desire to see the gospel go forward, that is part of the ministry that we are participating in. As we give to those who are in need, as we give to brothers and sisters in Christ, as we see the need presented, and as we give to the furtherance of the gospel. And so here's a witnessing church that doesn't just see a need and pass it by, but a church that gets behind it. It it, it kind of literally puts its money where its mouth is. It's a church that is eager to support. The spirit of generosity that we see expressed in this local church, in this assembly, should be one that typifies us as well. If we are to be a church that is witnessing, that is giving the gospel to others, that is making disciples, that means we're going to be eager to see it happen in other places and eager to see those that are giving the gospel helped as well. It's important for, our, for the gospel growth that we are supporting, that we are helping those along the way. And my prayer is as we grow as a church that our burden also grows that we can continually have a help to other people, whether those are missionary endeavors or just simply that those, those are in need, that we give the gospel in a variety of ways, that first of all, we're doing it, we're doing it verbally on a day-to-day basis, even in the midst of adversity by giving the gospel to others, that we are grateful as a church for God's work in other places. We're, we're understanding, we're knowing, and we're rejoicing in what God is doing in other places. And then that we are generous towards the furtherance of the gospel, both with our own ministry and with the physical blessings that God has given us. The the, the church promotes the gospel in a variety of ways. Lord, bless us as we are part of the ministry that you have called us to here. But Lord, thank you that we can be a ministry to those around the country, around the world who are giving the gospel faithfully. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts even this morning as we reflect on what you've taught us through this passage. Help us to be believers who are furthering the gospel and help us to be a church that is a witnessing church. In just a moment, I will...